got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We left off last time with verse 2. So guess where we are? You're smart. Can't pull one past you guys. Verse 3. As you're turning there, let me ask you some questions. What do you think the greatest hindrance is to our relationships with people around us? What causes the most conflict, the most strife, the most anguish, whether it's in the home or in the workplace or wherever it is that we are in relationship with other people inside the church, outside the church, what causes the most conflict and anguish and such? What causes that? You might say, well, the Sunday school answer is sin. Sin causes that. And that's true. But in particular, which one? What sin is responsible for the most disunity and disruption and division both in the church and outside the church? This is what Paul begins to address in the passage that we're beginning to look at this morning. Now, I had some grand plans of covering like six verses today, but uh, the Lord had different plans, so we're going to be focusing primarily on verse three, but we are going to take a a peek at verses four and five. Uh, There's just too much in verse three for us to gloss over that. so we're going we're gonna to look at a larger portion. So by way of context, I, I want to I actually start back in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 8, focusing on verse 3, but that's the context in which we find it. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as the church this morning to worship you and sing praises to you. We pray, Father, that you have been honored and blessed and glorified, not just through our voices, but as a result of our heart overwhelmed by the grace that you've shown to us in Christ as we sing these songs and hymns of faith. 
extolling your goodness and your grace. We pray that you've been honored. We thank you for the privilege of observing the Lord's Supper together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we remember what Jesus did for us and as we look forward to being reunited with him in the great hereafter. Father, now as we turn to your word, we continue in worship and we continue in a spirit of thankfulness. Thank you for this book, Lord. What a privilege it is to read the very breath of God in our own language. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning from your word to give us understanding about what it means and so that we can apply it to our lives so that if even only a bit that we might be transformed to look a little bit more like Jesus this morning so that you be glorified through us corporately. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So the opening phrase there of verse 3 communicates three very important things to us. That, that opening phrase in verse 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. So that communicates three things. First of all, the connection of the message, where it's connected. Second of all, the emphasis of the message, how important it is. And thirdly, the extent of the message, to whom it's intended. So the word for at the very beginning there tells us that there's some sort of connection between this passage that we read and verses 1 and 2, the very first verses of chapter 12. So there's something that Paul said in those first two verses that he now wants to give further explanation to. And that's signified by the word for, which means because or for instance. So what did he say in verses 1 and 2? He said, I want you to daily surrender your lives as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship, he said. I want you to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, not to be conformed to the pattern that you see in the world around you. Now, that's what verses 1 and 2 said. If we look beyond that into the remainder of chapter 12, all of chapter 12 as we work through this, it's going to be about what that transformed life looks like and specifically in relation to how we relate to people around us. Generally speaking, the first half of the chapter is how we ought to live our transformed life in relation to other believers in the body of Christ. Generally speaking, the second half of the chapter has to do with how we ought to live our life transformed in the likeness of Jesus in relation to unbelievers outside of the church. And so apparently one of the ways in which we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind is by changing how we relate to one another, to people. Chapter 12, as we're going to see, is chocked full of all kinds of advice and exhortations about how we're to relate to people around us, both inside and outside the church. And at times, uh, chapter 12, Paul's going to come at us with this machine gun kind of command, one after the other. In fact, listen to verses 9 through 13. 
He says, let love, listen to all the commands. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Just one after another. And all of these commands, all of these exhortations that we see in chapter 12 that have to do with how we relate to other people are examples of how we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as he told us in verses 1 and 2. So as we make our way through this chapter over the next few weeks, every single command that we'll encounter in this chapter will in reality be an extension of verses 1 and 2. How we surrender ourselves daily as living sacrifices, not to be conformed to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we'll see these specific commands as to what that transformation looks like in relation to people around us. And so that opening phrase... um, communicates, first of all, connection, the connection of the message. And we'll see that connection all throughout this chapter. But secondly, it also communicates the emphasis of the message. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say by the grace given to me? When he refers to the grace given to me, he's not specifically just talking about his grace and as unto salvation. Most Bible commentators agree that what Paul is referring to here is the grace that God has specifically given to him as an apostle. He's appealing to his apostolic authority. Paul does this often in his writings from time to time. And usually it's for the purpose of, of putting emphasis on something drawing our attention to something particular that he's trying to communicate. And that's what Paul is doing here. There's something critical in this passage that he wants to make sure we don't get. And so he appeals to his apostolic authority. I I say to you by the grace given to me. But then thirdly, this opening phrase also communicates the extent of the message. He says, I say to every one among you. Now, why does he put it that way? I mean, hasn't Paul been speaking to everyone among them all throughout this letter? Of course he has. Why does he designate the exhortation of this passage in that way? I think partly it's because he wants to put some emphasis on this, and he doesn't want anyone to miss this. But partly also, I think it's because he wants to He wants to make sure his readers know that he's talking to each and every follower of Jesus Christ in the church at Rome. No exceptions. And so, consequently, he's talking to every single follower of Jesus Christ in this room this morning as well. So so we can summarize verses 1 and 2 told us to surrender all of who we are as a living sacrifice to God. This is, this is what we owe God. Not to pay him back, but in light of his mercies, in light of what he has done for us, that we surrender all of who we are on a daily basis to God. This is our rational, spiritual service of worship. 
And that happens as we resist being conformed to the pattern of the world and instead being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then this opening phrase, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, it shows us that the transformation referred to in verse 2 begins with how we relate to other people. It also tells us that this is super important for Paul, and so he appeals to that apostolic authority, and he wants to make sure that he knows that this is for everyone, not just for apostles, not just for pastors and elders and teachers, but this is for everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. So what is that? What is it that Paul says that he's trying to draw emphasis to, to make sure that we don't miss? He says it in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say... To everyone among you, what is it that he says? Here it is. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now there's a, there's a word play there in the Greek that doesn't come out as forcefully when we interpret it or when we translate it into English. The Greek word for think here is used four different times in verse 3. We could literally uh, translate this as don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but in your thinking, think soberly about yourself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So there's four uses of the word thinking there. There's thinking there's thinking too highly of yourself. There's the kind of thinking that we ought to think of ourselves, And then there's thinking soberly about self. But in two of those cases, Paul gives them to us as commands. He's telling us something to do. And one of them is in the negative form, and one of them is, the, is in the positive form. And so Paul is following the, 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 the very same example that he set for himself in verse 2. In verse 2, he gave us a negative command and a positive command. In verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, and then the positive one, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now in verse 3, the negative is, don't think too highly of yourself, and the positive is, think soberly of self. To think too highly of yourself is, of course, pride. And to think soberly or rightly of yourself is humility. So in a nutshell, what he's telling us here is to, to guard against becoming prideful and to cultivate humility. So why is Paul addressing pride and humility here in this passage? Well, first of all, um, it should go without saying, but we won't go without saying it, is that this is a huge problem. This this pride issue, this, this need for humility in us is a huge and pervasive problem for every single one of us. And so it's absolutely critical that we address it. I think this is why he appeals to his apostolic authority. For by the grace given to me as an apostle, don't think too highly of yourself. Instead, think soberly of yourself. I think this is why he says, I say to every single one of you, because none of us are exempt from the wickedness of pride. I think also this is why it's listed first here among all these other exhortations and all these other commands that are given in chapter 12. Think about it. He's just told us in verses 1 and 2 about this, 
need for us to be radically transformed to look more like Jesus by the renewing of our minds. And then this discussion about pride and humility is the very first one on a list of many. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great preacher of the last century, noted that it wouldn't be listed first here if it weren't such a common failure for all of us as Christians. We know this. Pride is a huge problem. And it's an issue for every single one of us. Not a single one of us is not stained by the ugliness of our own pride in some way. And scripture is replete with exhortations along these lines. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, which is where we get our cultural cliche that pride comes before the fall. James says in James 4, 6, quoting from the Old Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And then he tells us why. He quotes the very same place that James quotes. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The problem of pride is is pervasive. It, It affects every single one of us to our core. To our very core. Pride, you could say, is the very essence of sin itself, exalting self above even God. But it's also critical that we address this, that Paul addresses this, this need to fight against pride and this lack of humility that we have, because if we don't address this, then we've got no hope of rightly relating to the people that God puts around us in our lives. So addressing the problem of pride is is necessary if we're going to relate to one another both inside the church and outside the church, if we're going to operate and properly function as as the church, and if we're going to be faithful and effective in our mission to take the gospel to the nations, got to address the problem of pride and the need for humility. Again, chapter 12 is all about describing this kind of transformed life that he refers to in verses 1 and 2. And that begins with how we relate to people. And how we relate to people begins, Paul tells us, with how we relate to self, how we view ourself. And if we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, then we've got no hope of relating rightly to the people that God places around us. And we know this to be the case. Think of the last time you had an argument with someone. Think of the last time you were in conflict with someone. And how would that have gone? How would that have gone differently if neither of you had even a hint of pride and had only humility in you? How differently would that conversation have gone It'd be really difficult to sustain a conflict between two people if they had no hint of pride and they had 100% humility. Or to use Paul's language here, it would be equally difficult to sustain an argument, a conflict between two people 
who didn't think too highly of themselves and just thought soberly of themselves. So to what degree has pride infected your life and poisoned the relationships in your life? I'd be hard-pressed to point to anyone that spent much time with me at all that wasn't in some way impacted by my pride, affected by my arrogance and self-promotion. I think we'd all find ourselves in a similar place Pride infects all of us. And Paul says, don't think too highly of yourselves. And I think we should admit that this is a very cross-cultural, a counter-cultural message. And so much so, I'd even say this is the third reason why this is addressed here by Paul. Because this is a counter-cultural message what, what is the message that we're told by our culture? What is our world, the world that we live in today, what does our world tell us our view of self ought to be? It says we're number one, right? You're number one. You're the greatest, and you ought to look out for number one. You need to be all that you can be. You deserve this. You deserve that. You don't deserve this bad thing. The world around us elevates self-esteem. Self-worth and self-significance is paramount. You can do anything you want, the world says. The world tells our kids, and in some cases, maybe we've even told our kids, you can be whoever you want to be. Can we just admit, no, they can't? If your kid is five foot four and can't jump, they're not going to be the next LeBron James, no matter how many basketball leagues you put them in. They can't be anything that they want to be. They can be exactly who God wants them to be, but they can't be anything that their little sin nature wants to be. They just can't. But we tell them that, and why? It, it just, all it does is it, is it causes them to do what Paul is warning us not to do, which is to think too highly of yourself. Another reason why addressing pride in us is so critical is because in the church, it stands in the way of unity. It stands in the way of unity in the body of Christ. I would venture to say that wherever you see a lack of unity... Wherever you see division between brothers and sisters in Christ, pride is somewhere in that mix, almost always. And it's almost always in us. We like to to say, yeah, that person has a problem with pride, but but really we we need to focus on the infection of pride that is in our own hearts and lives the pride in me, not in the other person. That's why Paul said, I say this to everyone among you. He didn't say, I, I, I say this to your neighbor who struggles with pride. No, he says it to every single one of us because we all struggle with this. So we've got this first negative command. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And then there's the positive command, but think with sober judgment, the ESV says. 
Or think soberly about yourself. To think soberly about yourself means to think rightly about yourself. Not to think too highly of yourself. And conversely, not to think too lowly of yourself, but to have a right view of self. So Paul is telling us that we need to change the way that we think about ourselves. And here again, we see this connection back to verses 1 and 2, which lay the groundwork for this whole chapter. In verse 2, Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Remember last week, we, we, we played with Plato and we had the mold, right? And we talked about how we're being pressed into the mold of the world and we need to resist that press. Well, with respect to how we think about ourselves, what's the pattern of the world? What is the world's mold in that respect? Well, the world's pattern, as we've already mentioned, is to elevate self, to promote self, to look out for number one, to be all that you can be. Self-esteem, self-promotion, you deserve better, all all of that. And our three-headed enemy that we talked about last week, Satan, the world itself, and our sinful nature in us, our three-headed enemy, all of those are promoting that kind of mindset. And they're pressing us into that mold, into that pattern. That's what our flesh wants. Because our our sinful nature wants nothing more than to be made much of. That's what the world wants. That's the message that the world is giving that is drawing us to that. And it's certainly what Satan wants. Because if we're worshiping self, then we're not worshiping God. And he wants that more than anything else, to rob God of the worship that he deserves. Not to mention the fact that if Satan can get us elevating self and promoting self within the body of Christ, then he's been successful in introducing things like disunity and division into the church. And that both robs God of glory And it distracts us from our mission of making disciples of all nations. So that's the mold that we're being pressed into. But Paul also said in verse 2, the positive side, he said, instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So be changed from within, changed in how you think, feel, perceive, and make decisions. And so one of the ways in which we're transformed by the renewing of our mind is by changing how we think about self. Not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think soberly, to think rightly about ourselves. So how do we do that? How do do we not think too highly of ourselves and instead think soberly or rightly about ourselves? Well, Paul tells us at the end of verse 3, He says, we're to do this according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, the remedy for fighting against pride and fighting for humility in us, the remedy, our remedy in that fight is the measure of our faith. Or to put it another way, our faith is the antidote to the poison of our pride. Or to put it even another way, faith kills pride and cultivates humility. 
which is absolutely critical in our relationships with people. Faith kills pride and cultivates humility. How does that work? What is our faith? What is he referring to here? And how does it kill pride and cultivate humility? Well, when Paul was referring to the faith that God has assigned, he's talking here about our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve, the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. This is the faith that he's been writing about in the first 11 chapters of this letter. So how in the world, for example, how in the world can we continue to think more highly of ourselves than we ought when Paul says of all of us what he says in, verse, in, in chapter 3 of Romans, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our throats are an open grave. Our, we use our tongues to deceive. The venom of, of asps is under our lips. Our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. In our paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace we have not known. There is no fear of God before our eyes. You know, to put it lightly, that's not a very good passage to memorize and study if the aim is to try to build our self-esteem, right? And that's because that's not the aim of Scripture, to build our self-esteem. If anything, it is to dismantle our pride. If we truly understand the depths of our depravity, then we will not continue in our pride. If we really think that we're, you know, that we're all that in a bag of chips, then it's partly because we've not come fully to grips with how depraved we really are. None is righteous. No, not one. None is righteous. No one does good, not even one. So the the gospel reminds us that we have no righteousness of our own. And therefore, we have no hope of reconciliation with God. No hope whatsoever. Unless someone or something outside of us comes to rescue us by grace. That's exactly what happens, right? About about, about halfway through chapter 3, Paul says this, but now, that's the bad news. You got no righteousness, none. You're not acceptable to God. But here's the good news. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So even though you can't achieve righteousness by following the law, you can't achieve righteousness by rule following, the good news is the righteousness of God has been manifested, and it's apart from the law. And he goes on to describe it. He calls it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the answer to our depravity and our lack of righteousness is not found in ourselves trying harder to do the right thing and trying harder to follow all the right rules. But our, our answer to our depravity and our lack of righteousness is found in Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to us by faith in him. 
And so to say that fighting against pride and fighting for humility in our hearts is to be done in accordance with the measure of faith that God has assigned, this means in part that my faith is not in my ability to make myself more deserving of that righteousness. That my faith is, is not in how valuable I am. That, uh, how successful I am, how worthy I am, how, how significant I am. But conversely, my faith is in the inestimable value of Jesus Christ and in his unending significance and glory. John Piper put it this way, when faith stands in front of a mirror, the mirror becomes a window with the glory of Christ on the other side. I love that. Think about this. When we look into a mirror, what do we see? We see ourselves. We see an image of ourselves, and we esteem that image. We value that image. We think that image significant, and we want to do all that we can to esteem that even more and to value that even more, and we order our lives around trying to make that image of ourselves more valuable, more worthy, more significant, What are we doing? We're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. But when faith stands in front of a mirror, the mirror becomes a window with the glory of Christ on the other side. And then we see him, not ourselves. We value him, not us. We we esteem him as great, not ourselves. So if we want to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and if we want to think soberly about ourselves, then it's incumbent upon us to grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our battle against pride and our battle for humility will be in direct proportion to the condition of our faith. We simply can't continue to think too highly of ourselves if our minds are constantly being pressed to think more highly of Jesus. We won't esteem ourselves too highly if we're consistently esteeming Jesus higher and higher. The more we see our own brokenness apart from Christ, our own need for rescue because of our sin, the more humility will actually characterize us rather than pride. And we'll begin to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus from the inside out. So church, let's press into the gospel. Let's press into our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our everything. And then pride and humility will take care of themselves. A couple of ancillary notes I wanted to mention to you this morning. First is I think, I think the same is true in our battle against thinking too lowly of ourselves, Because we can fall off the other side of the horse as well, can't we? We can stare into the mirror and we can think too highly of ourselves, but we can also think too lowly of ourselves as well. And it leads to depression and self-loathing and despair. Now this passage here in Romans 12 doesn't speak specifically to this, but the biblical principle of taking our eyes off of self and putting our eyes on Jesus holds true when we think too little of ourself as well. And we see that elsewhere in Scripture. One of the places where we see this is in Psalm 42. 
Listen to verses 5 and 6. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. The psalmist is speaking to himself. Why are you so down? Why are you in despair? Why are you depressed? And his answer is to this condition is hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mazar. When we're thinking too little of ourselves, the answer is not to try to find something significant about ourselves or to find something that we can really value about ourselves or to, to, to find something that we can point to and say, wow, that, that, that's a way that we can think better of ourselves. No, the answer is to take our eyes off of self and to put them on Jesus as our king. As we behold such a great king and we consider the wonder that he would adopt us into his family. That he would take sinners and rebels like us and make us his very own children. Another observation that I had about verse 3 here is about this measure of faith that he says that God assigns. The, the, the last part of verse 3 says we're to, we're to think soberly of ourselves each according to the measure of faith that God assigns. At, at first, this statement concerned me as I read it. Does this mean that God gives out faith in varying degrees and is that really fair of him to do so? Is this measure of faith, is he speaking here about God assigning to his children faith in a generic sense, faith to believe in Jesus? And so we all receive that same kind of faith from him as a gift from God, as he says in Ephesians 2.8. Or is he talking about an assignment of individual faith that varies from person to person? And I think it's both. We've already covered the first part and talked about how our common faith in Jesus Christ helps us to not think too highly of ourselves because we were able to see ourselves in a, in a right perspective of really who we are in Christ. And then we see Jesus and we esteem him greatly and not ourselves. This is the faith that we have in Jesus as our substitute. And this is the faith that saves and this is the faith that sanctifies and sustains us. But I do think Paul here, as we read through this passage, verses 3 through 8, that he's intending here for us to make a connection between this statement in verse 3 and what follows later in verse 6 when he says this, having gifts, speaking of spiritual gifts, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. When we cover verse 6, one of the things that we'll see is that Paul is talking about how God gives different spiritual gifts to believers when they come to faith in Christ. And they're not all the same. Not everybody has the gift of teaching or the gift of mercy or the gift of service. And so if there's any connection here between verse 3 and verse 6, and as we read the, look at the grammatical structure of this passage, it would be hard to argue against a, a really strong connection there. So if there is a connection there, then that must lead us to conclude that God somehow apportions faith to his children 
in varying degrees, just as he apportions gifts in varying degrees. And we know this to be true of our own lives, just individually, over time, right? We come to faith in Jesus Christ initially, we become a follower of Jesus, and we have this very young and immature faith in Jesus. And that faith, over time, it grows, it matures, it gets stronger and is cultivated. And we must say that that is God's doing, and that he is sovereign over our sanctification and even the rate of our faith growing. So we know this to be true of our own lives as we grow in our faith, but I think we can also see this from person to person as well. Some have more faith than others. Whether it's because they've been walking with Jesus longer or whether it's because God has sovereignly allowed them to experience certain trials in their life that have tested their faith and made it stronger, or whether it's because God has just sovereignly allowed them to see some miraculous answers to prayers, and it has bolstered and grown their faith in ways that others of us have not experienced, and they have a a greater faith in his providence. And again, we must say that this is God's doing, that he's sovereign over this. But ultimately, where Paul is going with all of this, as we'll see in just a few weeks, not only with the varying levels of gifts that he gives to believers, but also in the faith that he gives to believers, that the diversity of our gifts and the diversity of our faith is ultimately what cultivates unity and interdependence in the church, in the body of Christ. Look with me quickly at verses 4 and 5. He says, For as in one body we have many members, he's talking about our physical bodies having all these body parts. In one body we have these many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Paul is telling us, in this passage, among other things, that we all need one another in the body of Christ, that we are dependent beings. And in a sense, we're interdependent on one another in the body of Christ. We need, we need different gifts, different spiritual gifts in order for the church to operate properly. And we also need folks with greater faith to push us and to prod us to greater faithfulness to do and be what God has called us to do and be. Let me, let me give you an example. Those who are young in their faith need those who have walked with Jesus longer. There is a deepness and richness to their faith that can only be acquired by longevity in Christ. But may I submit to you, the opposite's also true. Those who have walked with Jesus longer need those whose eyes of faith have only recently been opened to the glory and majesty and grace of God. There's a freshness and vibrancy to their faith that is contagious and encouraging to those whose rescue from sin has been many, many years removed. 
And so church, let us rejoice in that God's providence, there is a diversity of gifts and a diversity of faith within the body of Christ that he has assigned to us. This doesn't mean that we don't all need to still grow in our faith. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that if we're going to grow, then we're going to need all of us pressing in to this together in this battle. I want to close by reading from Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul was exhorting the church at Philippi in this very same battle, this battle against pride and this battle for humility in the church. And he exalts Jesus. He lifts up Jesus as our example for humility. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Again, the renewing of our mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then what did God do? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue can profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Church, let us likewise look to Jesus, who though he is God, he humbled himself and became a servant to serve us. May he be both our example and our hope in fighting against pride and seeking to cultivate humility in us. Let's not be conformed to what the world says we ought to think about ourselves. Let's be transformed by the renewing of our mind to have the mind of Christ to live by that example with his hope as we live sacrificially for him. Let's pray.